listening to The Peaceful Podcast, brought to you by the Peace Counseling Program of the Victoria Women's Transition House Society. Tune in if you'd like to hear tips on wellness and information on therapeutic strategies to support you in your daily lives. On this podcast, you will find recordings for all members of the family, including caregivers, youth, and children. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. So I am Paulina, um, Peace Counselor with the Victoria Women's Transition House. And today I'm here with Stephanie Curran um, to do a little interview. And I will introduce Stephanie now, or actually I'll introduce Stephanie after I um, take a moment just to acknowledge the land that we are currently on. So um, I work and live and enjoy my time on the uh, traditional territories of the um, of the Lekwungen and Sankotan speaking people of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. And I'm feeling grateful to call um, this land my home where I currently live. Okay, and so as promised, I will introduce Stephanie. So I met Stephanie um, through a an eight week intensive mindfulness-based stress reduction class um, that did occur over Zoom because it was during the pandemic time. And um, since then, I just recognize Stephanie as being, as holding a wealth of knowledge and a really great person to collaborate with for the work that I do. And so that's what brought us here today. So Stephanie is trained um, in traditional Chinese medicine and has expertise in women's health issues as well as um, muscular skeletal um, uh, body issues as well and has been in private practice here in Victoria since 2000 and has founded Elements Health Care Center or Elements of Health Center um, in 2006. And there Stephanie practices acupuncture and um, support with women's issues as well with the, the traditional Chinese medicine approach. And what really brought us here today was Stephanie's background in um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. So she is certified practitioner and has worked with um, women with fertility issues, women, young mothers, women in parenthood, and as well as various community-based programs. So Stephanie, please fill in anything that I missed there. I think you, I think you covered, you know, a bit about me and my background. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Great. Okay. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. So I will just ask you some questions and we'll get to know a little bit about um, your background in regards to the mindfulness practice. That sounds really good. Okay. So I'm just going to open up my questions since I did not have time to jot them down. Okay. So first I'd like to ask what 
initially drew you to mindfulness? My first entry into mindfulness came through the practice of yoga. I had gone to do a teacher training program for a month in yoga and was very much approaching it from a physical body, you know, kind of perspective. And in this integrated one month training that I did, um, there was emphasis around the connection of the mind and the body, you know, that they're not actually two separate things. We tend to walk around much of our day quite separated, you know, we're like walking heads basically. Um, and, uh, and so it was my first sort of taste of integrating the two together actually. And early on um, in my early twenties, I was reading a book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now, old classic now. And uh, I remember taking pause and just kind of being like, oh, holy cow, because he named this thing that I hadn't considered or hadn't been offered to me as a possibility or I'd never explored, which was that if you're aware of yourself thinking who's listening if, if you're listening then who's talking right and that just kind of blowing my mind you know this sense of oh because I didn't have a sense of those two things being different and I was very much caught in the one that was talking and narrating all kinds of stuff and I really struggled quite badly with depression through my teens and I just had this sort of this flash of oh, all of the thoughts that I'm having might not be true. <laughs> you know, they, they're just thoughts and I can know them, you know, and, and that began the, the motivation or the inspiration to continue practicing, to continue turning towards knowing myself um, with more intimacy, with more care, with more kindness, more compassion and gentleness. And and just to see more clearly, because it suddenly became aware to me that I'd been living in a cloud, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, been about 25, 26 years of practicing since then now. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, and, okay, this kind of ties into that. Um, how has mindfulness influenced your life? So you did speak to that a little bit, but if there was anything more to add. Yeah. The thing that I think mindfulness has, has impacted beyond what I just named is, is starting to learn a different way of being in relationship with myself is, is also then how it integrates with how I'm in relationship with others, right? of how, um, how I move through everyday moments. Uh, with more presence, with um, not just being locked in autopilot much of the time, bringing more sensitivity, um, having a willingness to, um, to turn towards things that are uncomfortable, to uh, be a bit more vulnerable. Uh, and um, yeah, and, and this sense of of sharing it more openly with others. And then in that sharing of it with others, then there's a deeper sense of well-being within myself, that there's not just this sense of I'm the only one, you know, that's feeling this way, or um, it's just settled me into just more of a feeling of like, this is how it is to be a human being, you know, sort of expanding um, 
expanding the vessel instead of just being a cup that's half full or half empty it's like being a pitcher or being a you know like more vast more space and and that just allows um a feeling of of more resiliency i think so i think that um because and i say this in all of my classes and you've heard me say this paulina that it's not just about you know mindfulness on a cushion because we don't live on a cushion Right. We live, we live out in the world, we live out in our, in our lives. And so um, this exploration, particularly over the last decade, I would say is, is how do I bring this into my life? Not just when I'm practicing formally, but, but, but every, everyday moments too. Oh, that's, that's lovely. <laughs> um, and so can anybody practice mindfulness? Yeah, I think it's a tool that um, is is innately here and is available within all of us actually, um, and and you just need to look at children, I think to to see a clear example of that, because they're already very present moment oriented, you know, like we're innately kind of born like that, where there's this um, direct experience and knowing that kids are involved, and all you have to do is try to get a two year old toddler to walk from here to the park. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like the awe and the wonder of the cracks and the ants going by and the dandelions and the, you know, like they don't miss a thing, right? Whereas we adults, I feel like the further we get from the ground, the more we have to be intentional about gathering our attention, right? Like kids are right there. And then, um, yeah, so I think age-wise, certainly, um, and in age-appropriate ways, of course, um, modifications can be made and, and uh, there can be practice. And then I think regardless of, um, you know, orientation, uh, cultural ancestry or history or, or religion, belief systems, that this thread of mindfulness, I mean, we want to name that the roots of mindfulness does have connections with religion and different cultures, right? We want to be appropriate with not doing cultural appropriation, right? So it does have its, its roots there. But this one aspect from that whole wide tradition, just this one aspect of mindfulness is really, it's universal. It's how we pay attention. And if we're human, we all have that capacity of knowing what our experience is moment by moment. Right. So, so I do think it's a, a, a universal quality that can be applied regardless of our life circumstances. Um, that said, though, there are different ways and modifications depending on one's life experiences as to when it might be appropriate or, or when it might be too much. Right? So um, I know from your questions that you forwarded me that we're going to get into some of that. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Um, okay, so how might a parent or a caregiver of children benefit from a mindfulness practice? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on that. One of them is just from first naming the biological, you know, functioning of being a human. And it's that when we're born, our nervous systems are not fully developed. So our nervous systems aren't fully developed until we're about 25. So really this trajectory of being a baby and then a toddler and a child and a youth and even into early adulthood 
our nervous systems, because they're immature as mammals, as a human mammal, you know, just like we are animals, just to name that, is that we're hardwired and designed when we're young to be attuning to the other adults that we're around, that that's part of what informs our nervous system, right? And is part of what um, stabilizes and provides like a surrogate stability when as a child or as a baby, you know, there seems to be distress or upset in the system. Having a, an adult who, who has a, the ability to self-regulate and attune to and to stay regulated, that that radically informs, and especially not just once, but like repeatedly again and again, it, it's a part of what informs our growth and our what's called emotional intelligence. Right? Uh, and a uh, word that gets talked about a lot, particularly in schools, uh, is self-regulation. Right? This way to be able to um, calm ourselves down when we're upset and, and how to lift ourselves up when it's too flat. You know, this, this balancing that's dynamic. So that's one aspect of it is just from the nervous system. And then the, the other aspect of it, um, there's two parts to it that I think I'll name. One is, is that the ability to know and sense and feel in ourselves of what it feels like to be present, that that, that really nourishes and supports the intimacy in the relationship, whether you're a caregiver or a parent with that little one. That, um, you know, I feel it so much in, uh, in, in, in life that we're being pulled in so many directions constantly. And, um, you know, these, these, here it is, it's right here, because of course it's right here, right? Like we all have, most of us have one, and it's usually close by, and there's this pull to constantly have something else be pulling our attention. You know, as I was speaking, I saw mine light up, actually, just now, because somebody was calling. You know, it's like this, right? So, and it's not just technology, there's so many other demands and other circumstances so this ability to be able to gather and collect ourselves and be present with our little ones uh, really helps a form, form what's called a secure attachment. Not attachment parenting, not a parenting style, but the basic fundamental foundational need that we have as humans to with this secure attachment, it's to be safe, it's to be seen, and it's to be known and cared for, right? So when we're present, we can see automatically that we're more available for that kind of attunement and connection. And it's not to say we have to be that all of the time, you know, like, whew, right? <laughs> that's like, well, that's too much, right? There, I forget the name of the researcher. I can see the face of the fellow and, and I can see the video about it and I'm blanking on the name. Maybe it'll it come to- Dan Siegel? No, not Dan Siegel. Oh, no. Okay. Shortly too, but-, <laughs> but um, is it tronic or trillic? This, this sense of the attunement that I'm talking about, that, that it's normal and natural that we're going to be out of connection and then back in connection. And, out of, and same, with our, same with mindfulness, same with our awareness. We're going to be aware and then we're not going to be aware, like just to totally normalize that, right? And so for, this, for a secure attachment with a child to feel actually secure and for their system to be attuning well and to be regulating and having a, a secure sense of it, it's like 30% of the time, right? So I remember reading that and going like, oh, whew, right? That, that, that the other 70% of the time we're moving out of it and we're coming back into it, right? 
So being present really helps us with that. And then the other thing just to say, in, and I know this from my own parenting, I have an eight-year-old who's turning nine next month. She's very excited planning a birthday party. Um, is that when I can regulate myself and my own emotions, I'm better able to hold that in a more stable way when she's got whatever she's got going on. Because doesn't it feel like it as a parent that it feels like they're doing this at you? You know, that all their big feelings are all your fault. And it's like, blah, you know, um, you know, mommy, why isn't my whatever? You know, like there's always is like I've had some kind of evil plan to hide her toy. And, you know, it's some kind of scheming and contriving, you know, and it's like, no, no. But it feels like that when it comes at you. And so if we're not paying attention and we don't have this regulating ability in ourselves to first feel the anger rising, the agitation, and then to be able to insert a little bit of a pause, this is where the mindfulness and awareness comes, maybe take a breath for a sec and then respond. That's different than something hits you, you're activated with an automatic reactive response and then blah, comes out of your mouth. Like I know in my own parenting that it's much more likely that what's gonna come next will be improved and a little bit more skillful if I feel my big emotion rise first and I keep my mouth closed, <laughs> you know, just to insert the littlest bit of a pause and then move forward. And sometimes I'm not even able to move forward. I'm like, I need a sec <laughs> is the most skillful thing that can come out of my mouth, you know? And then, and then also the repair of like, how do I come back and lean back in when it hasn't gone the way I hoped, you know, and whether that's with another family member or with a partner or with a friend or with my child, it's like, how do I lean back in? How do I repair? Because that's really important for us to model for our children as well, because it's normal and natural that there's some kind of rupture and there's some kind of repair. So I think mindfulness uh, really helps with that. And I can really sense and feel that in my own life and in my parenting that that being true yeah that's lovely and everything that you just talked about with that question excites me so much there's like this new maybe it's not new but i new to me um research of like really connecting brain and nervous system yes like chemistry with mindfulness practice that's so ancient and so you know, simple and basic to a level and yeah. combining those together is so fascinating to me and so exciting and um, optimistic for parenting, yeah. I think. And what, and the name you just named of Dan Siegel, he's got a number of really great books out around parenting. He talks about this hand model of the brain, which mm. explains the nervous system around it, where for those of you who are watching this and not just listening, if you put your hand into a fist and you keep the thumb on the inside of the palm and the other four fingers rest over top of it, that we can consider, you know, the wrist part and the forearm, the brain stem. And then this thumb that's resting inside here is the amygdala, it's the fight, flight, freeze response, the primal part of our body that just gets us out of danger, right? Um, and then this whole area that falls on top with the four fingers is the prefrontal cortex and it's oriented like this in the brain. So this is the prefrontal cortex in the front here. So what happens when we're activated or triggered or some kind of, you know, big emotion is present is that the prefrontal cortex goes right offline actually, right? He calls it flipping our lids. 
and that what's available left here is what they call the reptile brain or the caveman or cave woman brain, you know, that primal part of ourselves that's just ready to fight or, or freezes, you know, because of past conditioning or um, fight or, or, or to run. We don't need all this other higher executive functioning of reasoning and thinking about it and, you know, all of that to get out of danger if there's a saber-toothed tiger, right? We just need that out of the way <laughs> to run, right? So that's how we meet danger. So, so this what mindfulness does in this neural system description that I've just described is with practice and over time, right, of practicing it again and again, just like you would if you wanted to grow this muscle, this bicep muscle, you, you need to actually flex it again and again and again, not just once, right, not just once a week even necessarily, but regularly having intention of it, right, it gets stronger. So with mindfulness, as we get stronger, we can start to notice that this is rising, that we're starting to flip our lid. And then because still some of the prefrontal cortex, which allows us some rationality and some understanding, we can go, oh, I'm starting to feel activated. What can I do to bring this back online so I don't just flip my lid, right? And then the other thing that was really helpful about this, and I think Shay was, this is my daughter, I think she was about a year and a half when I read this, maybe closer to two. When I saw this video, I was like, oh, that's so helpful because she's freaking out. She's fully flipped her lid as a two-year-old. And again, here's our immature nervous system, babies and toddlers. And even, you know, she's eight, she still flips her lid, right? <laughs> I'm 46, I still flip mine too sometimes, right? So again, just to normalize that, right? But here she was a toddler that's freaking out, like fully melting down. And, and I'm trying to be rational with her. And I'm trying to like, well, honey, that's because, you know, or like some kind of punishment or some kind of something going on, you know, there's definitely going to need to be some kind of conversation, some kind of reprimand, perhaps, you know, but while they're freaking out and they're in this amygdala mode, nothing we're saying is that, that part of their brain isn't even available need to do something to have that come back online, some kind of connection and attunement to be available. And now we can talk about the situation and how we might do that differently next time. And because it was like this, now it means this actually, you know, all those kind of conversations, not when, this is also helpful for adults too, not just for <laughs> kids, right? Like when we get in stickier or difficult communications, it's like, is now the time to get into all that? Or do we just need to settle a bit first actually? Right? So really helpful and mindfulness helps us to be able to track that and to know where we are in that cycle of things. Yeah. yeah. And that's so practical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. Okay. So my next question is how might a person who has experienced um, trauma benefit from mindfulness? Yeah. And Certainly mindfulness can be a tool and a way that it can um, help alongside other work that someone who's been through trauma would likely want to be undertaking. I think, I think if there hasn't been much work done yet in that area, um, or if you're not already in a relationship with a counselor or someone who's supporting you or a social worker or, or some, some kind of work like that to just do a jump into mindfulness, it might be a bit much actually, because there's this part of the system that uh, is already gonna be very easily activated 
right? And this sense of um, that that's part of what's been needed to be able to be safe is to be um, on higher alert for making sure that that doesn't happen again, right? When there has been a history of trauma. So it can be wise to do it alongside counseling and many counselors and psychologists do this type of work and, and training and they um, will offer in support and say, yeah, it's great for you to take a mindful self-compassion course or an MBSR course or a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course or any of the number of different programs that are out there. So I just want to preface it with that, that, it, that it's like, depending on how much work has been done or how recent the trauma is, or if you're living in the trauma, actually, right, like right now, that um, having the support of someone and having it be guided would be advised as opposed to just trying to do it by an app or just trying to do it yourself. Um, so that if anything is happening that's dysregulating, you have someone to be in relationship and communication with about it. So I think that's important to name and say. And then depending on the circumstances and you know, whether it's being lived right now or if it's the past or just the nature of it, that it can be a gentler, softer way in is to start with some shorter practices as opposed to diving into something that's 45 minutes long as a practice, like just start with five minutes, right? Just start with 10 minutes. Um, often it's helpful for people with trauma to make modifications to practices. So it's, it's kind of been traditional in, and even within the world of, of MBSR, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, that it's really only in recent years that there's been this acknowledgement. There used to be all this focus on awareness of breath, for example, but, the breath isn't always the easiest place and particularly for people with trauma, it may not feel safe to rest all of your awareness at the belly and to feel the breath moving in and the breath moving out. Like that might not bring a sense of stability and ease at all actually, it might be deeply triggering. So now in mindfulness, there's this awareness from a trauma informed lens of giving people different options of places, right? So maybe it's the soles of the feet or maybe it's resting the awareness in the hands. How right now as you're listening to this recording and podcast. How do you know you have hands right now? What do you notice? What does that feel like? Right? Or if even right now we pause for a moment, what sounds do you know you're hearing? Right? So there's going to be sounds that are further away, sounds that are closer in, maybe even the sound of your own body. Right? So, so this way of giving options so that people can choose and find for themselves when they go to do, as an example, one of those three, and just being like, oh, okay, I feel like the feet, like I feel like I can connect and that grounds me actually. I feel a connection with the earth when I notice my feet, right? And then the good news about that is your feet are always with you. <laughs> so here comes the, not just when we're on a cushion moment or sitting in a chair in formal practice, but while you're standing in line at the grocery store, while you're driving your car, can you feel the, the, the pressure of your foot on the pedal, right? So um, having different places where we anchor or gather or collect attention is helpful. And then there can also be this sense that, um, you know, the eyes need to be closed. The eyes don't need to be closed. There's nothing more special that happens if your eyes are closed versus if they're open. So for some people in particular, particularly people with trauma, it can be quite helpful to have the eyes open, right? So that you're able to still orient and know the space that you're in. Right? That'll feel more safe. You'll be able to feel more rooted and grounded and connected. And that's not just for true for people with trauma, but, but many people prefer to practice that way. And then the one last thing that I'll say is a modification around it. Um, if there's a history of trauma is not feeling like you have to be still, that you have to be stuck just in one 
posture you know that if you're if you're in the middle of sitting and you start feeling like um you're moving into a, a state of overwhelm at all then you can stand up you know if you've been lying down to sit up right to change of posture yeah having the eyes open or closed and then having different places where you might check out where does it feel easiest to gather and collect your attention as a place of anchoring those are um three things that I would say. And then this sent one last thing that I'll say, because it just happened on Sunday, actually, in a class that I was teaching. And this is someone who's been through an eight week course, and she sat in on many of my monthly touch point sessions that I do that are two hours on a Sunday once a month. And she messaged me right in the middle of, of the thing to say, after we came out of a practice, uh, to say that she felt really dizzy and nauseous. Right? And I, I had been watching the class. And because when i on Zoom, particularly, I keep the eyes open in case technology is happening or I can just sense or feel what's happening. And I'd seen that her eyes were closed. And so I said to her, by message, you know, open your eyes, practice with opening your eyes. And then we were doing some movement and yoga. And then when she got back to doing a practice again, she messaged me afterwards. She said, yes, it's easier with the eyes open. So all of this to say, she's already known this through going through an eight-week program, from doing it. But suddenly, something and I know she has a history of trauma that that something arose in her that that had her probably go into a bit of a freeze state right and and she felt stuck and didn't know what to do even though she knew what to do right so this is where being in relationship with someone and having somebody guide you and to be able to have a touch point of and and even um, for counselors sometimes they they do a, like a five minute practice just right in the counseling session right so that um, that that can be because we don't we don't want to re-traumatize ourselves in the practice of turning inward towards knowing our experience. Right? So it's this fine line of um, of turning towards and turning away, right? Of titrating, and and the more we practice, the more we get sensitive to what that's like. The thing with trauma, though, is that often there's not this sense, like with the hand model of the brain, where that's starting to lift up and we can know it and bring it back down. Often with trauma, it just flips. There's, there's not much sensation or knowing that it's coming. And so that's where having the support of someone guiding you can really be uh, of quite uh, beneficial and of support. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for explaining all of that. That's really um, practical and useful information for anyone who does have a trauma background. Um, and one last thing that I wanted to point out on that topic, I recall mm -hmm. in the class that I did with you, um, your language involved a lot of invitation. Yes. So a lot of if it's comfortable for your body, you might want to think about like lifting your leg, like just a lot of invitation and a lot of language where the person practicing is in control of their own practice. Yes. And, and also naming what's coming next. Right? Mm. So in a moment, we're going to begin to transition to, right, like that kind of thing so that it's not just now everybody this, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, voice is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't pick up on it at first. When I first started the class, I just was in it. And then I guess I stepped out a bit and heard it yeah. differently than just experiencing it. And um, yeah, I thought that that, like, I realized how much power I had in my own practice by the way that you 
spoke. And so I thought that that was very helpful. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have one last question and you did touch on this already. Um, so in your experience, is there any relation to someone practicing mindfulness and having improved abilities with communication or interpersonal skills? Yeah, I think um, that it's it's one of the very powerful aspects of, of mindfulness practice, actually, because um, the more awareness we have of our own inner workings, right, then then how we're going to be meeting with and engaging with external conditions, you know, other people being one of them, <laughs> um, is going to change because we're in relationship with it differently. And, and I know for myself that, um, that it's expanded my um, sense of compassion uh, in this sense of of sensing and knowing the thread that's our shared common humanity. Right? And that no matter what your background or past history or current life circumstances are, that there's this fundamental element of being human that we all share, which is, you know, the full range of the human experience, really, that there, all of us experience pain and suffering, you know, it's part of, um, it's, it's part of being human, that, that all of us are touched by joy, and connection, and, and love, that, that that's part of being human, you know, that, that there's these, and, and sometimes it can feel like, and I know this from being someone who has a mind that was really deeply rooted in depression for a while and still has some tendencies to go there, you know, because that was my hard wiring as I grew up, that the thoughts still arise, but I don't, they're not as loud, like, and I don't believe them to the same degree. And then because I don't keep feeding them, there's a, there's a little bit more space and a little bit more space between them, as opposed to them being the constant narrating you know, lens through which I'm looking out at reality. Right? So because I'm looking out at reality differently, then reality seems different. And, and how I'm going to be willing to engage with another, particularly if I see that there's struggle or suffering, um, or them being angry, it's like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that I get angry back at them. And then now we're entangled in this, right? So, so it really, um, knowing our own triggers, knowing our own reactive patterns, knowing our um, ways of, of how we are with things and our tendencies and our style. We, we do this in week six of an MBSR course, as you well know. It's like being, being more and more familiar with what are our maladaptive you know, coping strategies, the ones that don't serve us that well, and yet darn it, we keep playing them out again and again. So as we start to bring some awareness to that, that helps with our communication because a lot of our patterning comes through how we communicate, right? So it, it opens up and changes um, how we're going to relate to another, right? Yeah. Nice. That's perfect. Um, 
that was all I had prepared for questions. Um, during all of this with what we talked about, has anything come up for you that you would like to share before we, we finish up? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Just to say that, um, that I so appreciate that you're providing this opportunity and that you're going to be speaking with a number of, of different folks in the community to provide this resource for people to, to listen to. Um, and I know that my colleague, uh, Lisa Bayless will hopefully be one of them. And then, cause the conversation that we've just had together is around how does this impact us as adults and in our parenting? Um, but you know, how do we bring this to kids? How do we bring this to teens, um, and to young adults? So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a good conversation. That's the only thing that sort of comes to mind of, um, of how to bring it to kids uh, as well, because that's the other half of the parenting puzzle, isn't it? Um, and, and just the one thing that I would just briefly say around that, because um, it's ironic, because as someone who teaches and facilitates mindfulness and teaches others how to teach other people mindfulness, you know, my, da my daughter, if she sniffs out, even has an inkling that I'm trying to quote unquote, do mindfulness with her. She wants none of it. Hey, like she just, mama, that's your thing. hundred <laughs> percent, um, not interested, you know, um, but all of that to say how she's learning mindfulness is through watching and sensing and the attunement with me practicing mindfulness. Right. So, so if we want this for our children, you know, and, and for the youth that we live or work with, then the very first step is to embody it ourselves. Right? So I think that's, that's what I would say in closing that that's the first step. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful that that you said yes, <laughs> when I asked you to do this because you have um such a great way to share knowledge in a way that is practical and doable. Like I think mindfulness or meditation can seem like this crazy uphill battle yeah. <laughs> to try to like get to, but you really do bring it into very practical, doable, um, no stress type of method and just your presence and everything that you bring to it adds to that. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Mm, you're so welcome, Paulina. And thank you again for the invitation.